Okay there, saints. Tonight, Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 10. So if you want to begin to open your Bibles to that portion, let's simply bow our hearts. Father, we come to you. So grateful that Jesus, you have made for us a new covenant in your blood. So grateful that we come in grace, through grace, by grace, staying in grace, knowing that we are saved by grace, knowing that we walk by grace, knowing the gifts we've received, we receive by grace, knowing the things that we do, we do it because of grace. And Jesus, we're so grateful that we have been recipients of the grace of you, the grace of the Father, the grace of the Holy Spirit. You continue to work these things out in, life, in our lives, the long suffering, the patience. Always giving us, Lord, the things that we do not deserve, but constantly giving us things that remind us that we are your children, that we are recipients of blessings and recipients of the good. And so we thank you, Lord, that, that you've made these promises. You've walked these things and you have them ready for us. Well, we can't even fathom the blessings, Lord, that, that are waiting for us there in heaven with you. But we know they're there. You're, you're there, Jesus, and you promise these things to us. And so we're anticipating just forever and ever and ever with you. But tonight, just knit us to your heart that you can begin to not just challenge our minds, but, but transform our very walks, transform our lives into a deeper understanding and, and a closer intimacy with you. Draw us to your heart. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 34, verse 10. What I want to do is I want to just simply read through this portion that we're going to be looking at here tonight. We're going to be going through verse 17. But it declares this, and I want to actually back up to verse 8 so you see where, we, where we've been and where we're going. As you know, God had told Moses his name. And so verse 8 of Exodus 34, Moses made haste and bowed down his head toward the earth and worshipped. And then he said... If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. And then it makes this declaration, and take us as your inheritance. And so he, that is God, said, Behold, verse 10, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all people among whom you are shall see the works of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Verse 11, observe what I command you this day. 
Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters to play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Verse 17, you shall make no molded gods for yourselves. So an amazing thing that what God is doing here is, we've talked about it before, um, so often we think there's God of the Old Testament, there's judgment, God of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, which is grace. And here we're seeing, amazingly, that God is giving the covenant again. He's renewing the covenant that they just broke. Now, a just and right God could have simply said, hey, listen, you guys blew it. Your problem, not mine. I did everything. I held up my end. You guys didn't hold up your end. And so it's, it's an amazing thing that what God is doing through Moses' intercession, initially God says, okay, that's fine. You know, you're gonna, you can go do what you want to do. I won't destroy you, but I won't go with you. And Moses says, oh, if you don't go with us, what's the purpose? He says, all right, I'll go with you. But then Moses goes to one next step. And that step was found in verse 9, where he says, if I found grace, he's kind of like Abraham saying, okay, if they're 50, they're 40, they're 30. He says, if I found grace, oh my Lord, I, I pray go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Make us your special people once again. Incredible. He's literally saying, like, that parable that Jesus said of the, the prodigal son that went and took the all the blessings of the father, went and just blew it, lived a life of debauchery, and then when he was in need, he said, can I come back? But he didn't come back to be part of the inheritance. He came back to be a servant. And the father said, oh, much more than that. And Moses here saying, can we be your inheritance once again? Can you elevate it? And so when he does this, God's response to Moses now is one of grace on steroids. It's amazing. He comes and he says, I make a covenant. I make this covenant. I'm the one that's going to do this. And so it, it's an incredible thing that we're now seeing that God is about to make a covenant with those who sinned by worshiping the golden calf. This is a covenant by those who are proven sinners. But understand, it's a covenant with his children. 
And so as we see this, it's one of those things where God simply makes that declaration, I make a covenant. Now, when we understand this term covenant, um, the, the term has two meanings. It means one to cut and to divide, but it also means to bind. And the reason that is, is because when the covenant is first brought about to Abraham, what Abraham was supposed to do is he was supposed to take these carcasses of the, the, the ox and the sheep and the birds, and he was supposed to cut them and lay them in two. And so then you would pass through. One person would pass through on this side. One person would pass through on the other side. And they would meet in the middle and they would then, you know, pass each other. But, but through that, it was a statement that if I do not fulfill my end of the covenant, may I be like these carcasses. So it is a cutting because it was the cutting of the carcasses. That was the covenant, but it's also a binding to say the, the covenant we're making is we're passing through the things that we've declared prior to cutting this. This is where our covenant is going to be. So I think it's interesting that we recognize here God is going to be making this covenant. Now, one of the things that's unique is, is this, that I want to read to you just a couple of, of passages under, so that you can kind of understand the, the, the covenant, if you would. In chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, and so we're going to be reviewing a little bit of what we've done here in Exodus. The Lord makes this statement, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me, above all people for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these are the words which you shall speak to the children of israel so he gives them this understanding that in this aspect of the covenant that they were going to be this special treasure they were going to be a kingdom of priests and they were going to be a holy nation in other words they were going to receive blessings very unique, very specific blessings would be theirs. And so with this, as he made that statement, he says, if you will obey, then you will be. There was that, that, that if-then statement. And so when he does give them the covenant, something unique begins to happen in chapter 24 of Exodus. I want to read verses 3 and 4 and then 7 and 8 just to kind of keep us flowing. But three and four said, so Moses came and told all the people, all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord had said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, the 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, as he declares everything of the covenant, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled on the people and said, this blood is the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So we understand that initially 
that here they have this covenant. And now that they blew that covenant, now that they didn't do all the words, now God comes amazingly in verse 10 and he says, I make a covenant. It's amazing. God says, I just can't trust you guys. So I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And within this covenant, now I want you to recognize that within this area of God making covenants, the way to understand it would be clearest to look at a couple passages early on in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, we've covered it already, but we're going to read these scriptures just so that you can gravitate to what it is that God is going to do. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and verse 24. It says, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. It says in verse 24, so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God had made a covenant with Abraham. And the covenant went on to Isaac and to Jacob and to all the children of Israel that the land that Abraham was in was going to be a work that God was going to do, that he was going to give them that land. In Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 2 through 8, and verse 6 is going to be that, that key to us, but in Exodus 6, beginning in verse 2, and God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them. Now notice this covenant that was, God says, I'm going to do. He says this. Verse 4 again, I have established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians kept in bondage and have remembered my covenant. Therefore, verse 6, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you, verse 7, as my people. I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then verse 8, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as an inheritance, as a heritage. I am the Lord. So he makes the statement that I'm going to give to you the land. Now, the land that he's giving to the children of Israel is an unconditional covenant. In other words, they do nothing. How do we know? Because when Abraham had cut the carcasses and then God delayed and Abraham kept chasing away the buzzards, 
eventually Abraham did what? He fell asleep. And when he fell asleep, then came God smoking through the covenant, through these, these animals that were cut. God is making the statement, prepare the covenant. I myself am making it. You haven't passed through. This is a one-way covenant. I'm just giving you the lamb. And it is unconditional. And so as God is now coming back and Moses is interceding, He's making this statement. He says, well, can we again be your inheritance? An amazing thing with this grace is this. Understand that in the New Testament, grace is not a license to sin. And a lot of people believe that it is. What grace is, is this. No matter where you sin and how far you are in that sin, grace allows you to turn and come back. And so Paul goes on in many of his epistles to talk about if you do these things, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes through and he lists a bunch of sins. If you begin to practice these things, if this is your lifestyle, you can't take this grace and abuse it. The grace is to be used to come back into this right relationship. So what God is doing here is he says, behold, I make a covenant. And now he says, this is my promise. And this is a promise that, that regardless of what you do, I am still going to do this thing. Now, when it comes to this covenant, understand that what God had promised Israel as an unconditional covenant, covenant is going to bring them into the land. What God hasn't promised Israel is the blessings that will flow if they're in the land and are going to be disobedient, which is why when we get into verses 12 through 17, we're going to see this is something that he's calling them, don't go here. The beautiful thing when it comes to this covenant, and I think it's one thing to recognize that there is conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. They've already blown the conditional covenant, and God is going to, in a sense, says, listen, as the next generation comes, I'm going to watch over them. As the next generation comes, I'm going to deal with them, and, and if they have iniquity, I'm going to be, as I've told you before, I'm going to be long-suffering. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to have compassion. This is who I am. And I'm going to keep the mercy for thousands. I'm going to forgive transgression, iniquity, and sin. And, and these are the things that I will do. But when it comes to this covenant that we receive, two passages, and I want you just to be aware of that before we jump into continuing our study here. Two passages, first found in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. We've quoted this many times, but it's good to have this here when it deals with the covenant. The Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. So this is not this conditional covenant. In the day that I took them by the hand and I led them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And of course, then we recognize that when we get into the Gospels and as Paul writes his epistle, one verse so you can kind of jot it down, Mark 14, 24, where Jesus makes that statement, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. There's the new covenant that we have in the blood of Jesus Christ, and that is that we recognize the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses a man from all unrighteousness. This is the work that he's done. There's no work that we can do. The only thing that we can do is believe by faith. And even that is by grace. Even that is a gift, lest any man should boast. And so God makes this work of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that comes in him. Basically, as we see this, we come to Jesus Christ. And then this covenant is just ours we do nothing to earn it we do nothing to deserve it and so we can do nothing to keep it and so we just relish in it and and love the lord because of it so we're coming now to this issue and i think it's important to recognize here that that god had made this statement i make a covenant and now he's going to make a statement to say this is going to be unconditional. And he does this. He says, I will do marvels such have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, in all the peoples among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing I will do with you. So wherever the nation of Israel would be, God says, I am going to do marvels. I'm going to wow you, basically. And not only am I going to wow you, he says this. He makes that statement at the end of verse 10. He said, all the people who are among you shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing. They are going to see the awesome Things that God will do. Amazingly, I love that the, the passage where there in Joshua 2, Rahab actually talks to the spies and he says, All the people of the land, their hearts are faint hearted. They're in despair because you guys are coming. And, and it's amazing that as, as we look to that, it's just a couple of chapters later in chapter 6, that the, they simply just march around this incredible city called Jericho. The walls are absolutely immense and, and they have no rocks. They have no slingshots. They, they, you know, they have no battery ramps. And all they do is they just march around it once a day, saying nothing. But on the seventh day, they march around it seven times. At the end, they blow a trumpet. And when that trumpet blows, the walls fall down and, and God basically just conquers Jericho. You know, I, I, I would call that an awesome thing. And, and then as you go a little further in chapter 10, the sun actually holds up. It doesn't move. And so amazingly that as we, we look to this, the sun stood still. 
And this is what I would think is, wow, this is an awesome thing. This is what God does. And he makes this statement. He says, I'm going to do this. Why? Well, because I made an unconditional covenant with Abraham and his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, and you, that I would bring you into the land. And I'm going to bring you into this land. And oh, my goodness, am I going to do awesome things. But as you were asking, now in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, it says, Pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Amazingly, what the Lord does is this. He says, I'm going to bring you in. What I'm going to do is I'm going to glorify me. And oh my goodness, I'm going to bring you in and I'm going to do amazing things that people will know that, that I, the Lord, am your God. I, the Lord, am doing this. And then he says this. Verse 11, observe what I command you this day. Now, you want to be the inheritance. You want to be the blessings. Now, at this point, the blessings come with this conditional covenant, the one that you've already broke. I'm forgiving you. I'm giving you a chance to come back. But what you need to do is this. Come back to what you already said that you would agree to. The blessings come through obedience. As a Christian... Maybe you've seen Christians that have confessed the Lord and you honestly believe that they are born-again Christians. They've gone through the process of accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. They've experienced certain things that they've seen the power of God. They've gone through that aspect. They were baptized. And all of a sudden, their lives are just powerless. Their lives are chaos. And they don't seem to have the blessings. Why? Because you're not pursuing the Lord. You understand that the blessings come where, where the Lord always marks out through his word. He says, basically, he says, this is the X. Get underneath that. Do what I've called you to do. Be where I've called you to be. And you're going to experience the blessings. You're going to experience me and my power and intimacy. You're going to experience everything that I have for you to experience here on earth. You can do that now, but you've got to follow the map. You've got to be at that place where the blessings are being poured out. And so he makes this statement in verse 11, observe what I command you this day. And he makes a statement, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. I'm driving them out. And as I'm driving them out, understand, he's going to make this statement. He says, as I'm driving them out, he says, take heed to yourselves, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. I want to read to you just one portion, and it makes this statement. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, when God is speaking to Moses as he calls him to go to the children of Israel, Exodus 3, 8 simply makes this declaration. God says, For I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So he says, I'm taking you out of Egypt. I'm bringing you to this land because it's the covenant that I have made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob 
and all their descendants. So this land is an unconditional. Now he says this, verse 12, take heed to yourselves, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. It's amazing that the first thing he says is, I don't want you to make a covenant with the inhabitants. Make a covenant with me, only with me. And then don't make a second covenant. What would I liken that to? Let's just say that you're married and your spouse has made a covenant to be faithful to you. And now they go and they say, well, I'm gonna make a covenant to this other person as well, that I'll be faithful to them. Well, understand that if they make a second covenant, to say, I'm gonna be faithful to them, then they're not fulfilling the covenant to be faithful to you. They've already broken that. You make a covenant, one covenant, that's where it is. God likens the covenant to a marriage. And so we begin to see here so beautifully where in verse 15 he says, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and then at the end of verse 16, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. That now you go and you forsake the covenant you've made with me and you're making another covenant. God is very clear where he makes that declaration to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, that this is where I want you to be. I want you to make no covenant with the people of the land. In Exodus chapter 23, I want to read just a couple of verses to you. I want to start in verse 20 of Exodus 23. And I'm going to read down to verse 33. So you can just turn there because we're going to be here for a little while. But it says this in Exodus 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, verse 21, and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But... If you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel, verse 23, will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. Verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you, and no one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. And I will fulfill the number of your days. Verse 27, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people 
to whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I'll send hornets before you, which will drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. And I will not, he says, verse 29, I will not drive them out before you in one year. It's a work that's going to go, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Now I want to pause here for just a second because as he comes through, he says, little by little, I'm going to drive them out. But he does make the statement that when you come against those areas where you're now conquering, you find a place of their worship, destroy it. He's going to make this statement, and I think it's so important, that what we see is this. It's a progressive decline into idolatry. And so what happens with sin is this. Sin happens in little steps. Keep in mind that David didn't just wake up one morning and think, oh, let me kill Uriah the Hittite and some other Israelites and you know, have Joab send him up to the front lines. That wasn't his initial thought. His initial sin was, it was the time in where the kings went out to war and David stayed home. He should have been battling, he should have been fighting, and yet he was at rest. And because he didn't battle, and this is where I think sin comes in, when you think, oh, I can rest because I have victory over this, and I can rest because that's not a problem anymore. When you stop depending on God and, and going and battling going to God and asking for his strength and his power and his wisdom and his grace to overcome sin, sin is going to just increase. And so David was there on his roof. He saw the woman bathing. He inquired who she was. And they said, listen, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. All right, end the conversation. Sorry, God, forgive me. Let me go back into my wives and my concubines. He didn't. He called her to him, had an affair. And then once he found out that she was pregnant, now all of a sudden, now I got to try to hide this. And so he brings Uriah back to says, hey, what's happening there in the battle? And Uriah tells him, he says, oh, we're doing this and we're doing that. And then he says, all right, we'll go back to your wife for tonight and then tomorrow you go. And he says, no, no, the guys that I'm serving with don't have their wives. I can't take that pleasure. So he doesn't do it. Now they're like, oh my goodness, well, let's get him drunk, see if that happens. And he still doesn't go. And eventually he realizes that he cannot trick Uriah into being with his wife so that he thinks the child is his. So he then sends a note with Uriah to Joab and says, listen, send Uriah to the front lines. And he's got to die. It's progressive. And this is what we see. Because God makes a statement in verse 30 of Exodus 23. He says, little by little, I'll dry them out from among you, before you until you have increased and inherited the land. There's going to be a work that you're doing, and it's a progressive work. And this is what we call what? Sanctification. And when you come up with a new area and, and you're walking in life, when you recognize, wow, this is the idols of the world, what do you do? You don't take it in and embrace it. This is the world's view. Let's take it and embrace it. You don't take in the world's view. You don't make a covenant with the world. You, you've made a covenant to say, God, I'm yours. I want to be yours. And, and you're, you're saying, 
I've accepted Jesus Christ and, and now my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price and I want my life to glorify you because you purchased me. And so we see here so amazingly in verse 30, he says, little by little, I'm going to drive them out from before you until I've increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your boundaries from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you, and you shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods, and they shall not dwell in your land. Do you understand this? It's your land. I've given it to you. It's my land to give whom I will. I've declared it as the covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. They, verse 33 of Exodus 23, shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will utterly be a snare to you. So amazing that we recognize here that work that here God wants to do. And as he has told them, I don't want you to make this covenant with their gods, nor do I want you to make a covenant with them. And so what's amazing is when they get into the land, the very first thing that God says here in verse 12 is, take heed lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. Uniquely in Joshua chapter 12 or Joshua chapter 9, when they go into the promised land and they're conquering, that there in chapter 9, what happens is this. They run into this group of people. And I want to start reading it to you in Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. It came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan and the hills and the lowland and all the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So now, rather than them having to go from city to city to city, God gathers them all up for one false swoop. And in verse 3, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they were craftily. Now, Gibeon's just about 20 miles away from where they're camped. And it says they went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old patched sandals on their feet, old garments on them, put old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him, and to the men of Israel, we had come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Now, what's interesting in verse 7 says, Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. It's interesting. They're talking to the people. They're talking among themselves, but they're not talking to the Lord. And so as they do this, they, they said, no, no, we've come from this very far country. Verse 9, your servants have come. And, and so they said, when we took out the bread, it was hot. When we you know, had the wineskins, they were new. And it says this in verse 14, which is just truly mind-blowing to me. 
It says, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So, verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Then they find out they were liars. And yet the covenant was still there. And God had made it very clear where he says, I don't want you to make a covenant. Now what happens is this, that the, the sin that we're about to see here becomes progressive. In other words, don't befriend the enemies of God. And so in other words, by befriending them, what we're saying is this, don't come and just acquiesce to their sin to say, yep, I understand you're over here, but you know, we can, we can meld this together. Now God does call us to be in the world, but not of the world. So understand that when we're coming to this point, we make this understanding in our own heads and our own hearts. He says, don't make a covenant. And so in the, the, the new Testament, it talks about us not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so there, there's, there's directions, there's understandings as far as what God wants us to be while we're here on earth. And so he says, first and foremost, one, take heed to yourself lest you make a covenant where you're going, lest it be a snare to you. Eventually, we're going to recognize that it does become a snare um, they do keep the Gibeonites. They have them be woodcutters and water carriers for the temple and for the tabernacle. So they put them to work as indentured servants in a sense, but they do not destroy them. And so the understanding is they're not destroying their culture as well, that they're allowing them to keep their gods. And so they needed to utterly destroy everything. So he says, don't make this covenant. Don't knit yourself to them and he says this in verse 13, but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other God. It's amazing that we take a look at, he says, you know, you need to destroy all of their things of worship. One of the things that we're going to recognize as we continue through the New Testament is that we're going to see that most of us really don't have a desire, and maybe you had these last couple of weeks, I don't think you would have, but have a desire to bow down to an idol. It's just nothing that we do in this day and age. I'm not bowing down to an idol, and I don't think any of us really feel the need to bow down to an idol. So we're saying, well, why did these people bow down to the idols? Why do these people seek after these images, the pillars and the altars and the images? Keep in mind that there was a greater portion of the gods that were here that were gods of sensuality. And the worship of those gods would be, you would go and you would make alms and then you would participate with what was known as the temple prostitutes. And that was a part of their worship. And so you see the debauchery here of where the nations were. 
They were given over to sensuality. They were given over to the flesh. And, and it was a thing that was considered right and proper and even a thing to be sought after in their culture. Now, which culture would ever do that? And yet what? We see our culture just driving this whole understanding of, you know, the, 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 the declarations of God as far as purity and one man and one woman in marriage is just so outdated. It's so arcane that there's so much more enlightenment that we have and we should freely be giving ourselves over to these things. And it's amazing that when he talks about destroying their altars, their sacred pillars, cut down, don't even come to the point where you Think about coming into their worship. When you see something that is, is an act of worship that isn't worshiping me, you destroy it. It needs to be torn down. And, and I think it's so important that he says, you destroy the altars, break the pillars, cut down the wooden images. They need to be destroyed, consumed, torn down. And then he says this, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. This is incredible that God literally declares that he is a jealous God, that his name is Jealous. Remember when we were going through the commandments? There in Exodus 20, I want to read to you just a couple of verses, because in verse 3 and 4, when he makes that statement, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or anything that is on earth beneath or anything that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down, verse 5, to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He says, I don't want you to make any carved images. I don't want you to do anything like that. He says, you shall have no other gods because I'm a jealous God. Now that term jealousy simply means jealousy. Now when we think of jealousy, what is that term? Well, there's a good jealousy and there's a bad jealousy. Um, that when you have a spouse and that spouse is now pursuing someone else, you become what? You become incensed. You become angered because you're breaking that covenant. You are supposed to be mine, not, not that person's or another person's. And so there's this righteous understanding that the covenant is broken. And so there's an anger. So that term jealous comes that when the covenant is being broken, it says that there's a, a point of retribution that wants to come. And so understand where they, they come to that understanding that they recognize that purity in the relationship is everything. And so he says in verse 14, worship no other gods. And then just to make a clarification where he had talked to them about making no other idols. In verse 17, he does something very unique and very specific. He says, you shall make no molded gods for yourselves. Now, he does that because, remember in Exodus 32, verse 4, 
Where was the, the children of Israel? Well, it says that Aaron had received the gold from their hand. He fashioned with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. So he clarifies at the very end of this, in verse 17, he says, And just in case you forgot, make no molded gods. Don't play with their molded gods. And so um, don't do that, you know. And so you shall make no molded gods for yourselves. You do not fashion another god in any way. Now, as he goes in, and after verse 14, he says, Make no other God for um, the Lord your God, whose name is Jealous. I'm very careful to protect you and our relationship. And that's really what jealousy boils down to, where God says, I want to protect you. I'm jealous. I don't want other people harming you. I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to protect our relationship. And so as God protects the relationship, keep in mind that it's, it's where... I'm giving all of myself so that you can give all of yourself. That's the protection that he's doing. And so he makes a statement in verse 15. Don't make this initially, verse 12, a covenant with them. And then verse 15, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and they make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you and you'll eat of his sacrifice. He makes a statement that if you begin to befriend that person, you make a covenant with that person, you become unequally yoked. And, and, and so you're now saying that what, what's of you is good and I want to become with you and I want to follow you with what you do. And then they go into that lifestyle and they go and they play the harlot with their gods. Now keep in mind that God is already making this declaration that when they go to their false gods, they're still forsaking him. He's their God too. And they have forsaken him, but they're so far gone, they can't hear, nor can they understand and in a sense, it's almost like a rabid dog where there's no, gonna, there's no way to heal it. You just simply put out of its misery. And that's where this culture is. They're so far gone that they're not going to come back. And God recognizes that. And so he simply says, listen, you want to continue your practices? Leave the land. I've given it to Israel. You want to fight them for it? You're going to lose. You can leave the land. You can continue your practices, but you can't have that practice in this land because this is my land. This is my covenant land for my children. And so he makes a statement, be careful, verse 15, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. They play the harlot with their gods and they make a sacrifice to their gods and one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice. Now, after you say, okay, well, now we're going to just, you know, chum up and we're going to, you know, just be friends and then I'm going to allow whatever you do, I'm going to participate in it with you. Now, keep in mind that there are a lot of things where God has put it upon my heart to not just have friends that are Christians, that I will pursue friendships with other people that are not Christians, although I will not meet them in a bar, and I will not meet them there, and I will not do what they do, 
and they recognize that although we have this communication and we're maybe acquaintances and maybe growing beyond that, but there are limits that I won't cross. I just will not cross. Hey, you want to go see a movie? Not a chance. You know, you, you want to, you know, meet me here? Not a chance. But if it's something that, hey, you, you want to go kayaking? Absolutely. You want to go fishing? Let's go. Those are the kind of things that I can come and I can say, I can be a light, you know, and they're, they're going to still talk the way they talk, but I get to still talk the way that I talk. And, and more and more, there's just questions that come up as far as Jesus Christ and my relationship and, and what I understand of the scriptures. And, and, you know, we have those dialogues, but it isn't chumming up. And this is what verse 15 talks about, because he says, you've made a covenant, you sort of befriended them, and you're, you're, you're so into them that whatever they do, you do. And that's where he says, you got to be separate from that. You need to let them see your light. They need to come to you. You don't go to them. And understand that it's so easy that, think of Christianity like this. You're standing on a chair. What's harder for you to pull somebody up onto the chair or for them to pull you off the chair? So this is one of those things because sin drags you down and it always seems nice and and you think, well, maybe I'll just compromise this little bit so that I can tell you more of Jesus. And, and the bottom line is, is tell them about Jesus, but don't compromise. It, it's so important not to compromise. And then after you take that step of first making a covenant with them, and then you go and you become a part of them. And when they have a sacrifice, then they're like, hey, we're having this incredible barbecue of meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And you say, you know what? I love a good barbecue. And if it's meat sacrificed to an idol, I'm okay with that. And he says, you, you can't be. And so he says, when you're getting that step and you become more and more chummy, we begin to see that here, we understand that it's that that whole area of the progressive decline into idolatry, that first you befriend them, then you hang out with them and you do the things that they do. And then verse 16, now you take one of his daughters for your sons, and then his daughter plays the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Now all of a sudden, now there's intermarriage. And now you have a bond between their family and your family. And then there are going to be some instances where they're going to be drawn to the Lord. But the danger being is this. He says, You're, you've opened up for your son now to play the harlot. Two passages I want to give you to kind of bring you a little bit of understanding to what it is that God is declaring. In the book of Genesis chapter 6 there's this portion of, of scripture where God makes this statement and I think it's important to, to know this he says there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them now I've already understood that the sons of God according to scripture is you know, those who do the will of God, these are the sons of God. And it says that in Romans, it defines who they are. And so we understand where the sons of God um, came into the daughters of men. And so they had that, that intimacy. And what we're seeing here is this. They took their daughters for their sons. 
and then their sons now begin to play the harlot. There's another passage to be aware of um, found in Numbers chapter 25. And in Numbers chapter 25, if you're familiar with this, this is right after Balaam makes this contract with King Balak and he tries to curse the nation of Israel. Well, eventually he realizes, I cannot curse them, but I can let you know how to cause Israel to stumble. And so through the counsel of Balaam, this is what Balak does. In Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, Now Israel remained in the acacia grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. At this point, it got to the point where verse 6 says, And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle. And so you have part of the people repenting and grieving and weeping, crying out to God. And this one guy comes and brandishes this woman this Midianite woman, Cosby, walks her right past Moses, right past all the children of Israel. And eventually Phineas sees it, and he goes and he takes a javelin. He went after the man, and then he thrust both of them through. The plague stops. But it was interesting that we begin to see, verse 14 says, Now the name of the Israelite who was killed who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, the leader of the father's house among the Simonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur. He was the head of the people of the father's house in Midian. So you're thinking, here's someone of renown, someone of that will you know, help out my family. And the bottom line is, is it is sin. And so keep in mind where God had made that statement, don't go after them because you're going to have this progressive decline into idolatry. And the last furthest one is when you marry an unbeliever. When all of a sudden you come to that point of, of marrying someone that is not walking with the Lord and, and you say, well, you know what, maybe I can bring this person back into a right relationship with the Lord and eventually what happens as always is we falter, we fail. And so keep in mind that God makes that statement, don't go after other gods. Be careful and be warned as far as the progression that comes into idolatry. One last passage that I want to give you and just I want to close with this because it deals with God being a jealous God, but I think it's important so you recognize this is New Testament but it says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I simply want to read the first four verses to you. But it says this. Oh, that you would bear with me a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband 
and I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches the other Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you have received a different spirit, which you do not receive, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, that it that you may well put up with it. He says, I want to present you to Christ. And that is my one goal. And I love Paul's heart. And that, pray and say, God, would that be my heart? That my goal is that I can present people to Christ as a chaste version. In other words, a chaste virgin, one who hasn't had other gods, wasn't had other men, but you say, I'm only going to come to you, Jesus Christ, and to you alone am I going to serve, to you alone am I going to worship. And amazingly, in the New Testament, the, the, the Paul talks about how we need to, as husbands, love our wives as Christ loved the church. He talks about the relationship of Jesus and the church as we are the bride of Christ. It's so incredible to see that God doesn't want us drifting to the things of the world. He doesn't want us drifting to those things. And so my, my counsel to you is that as the new year has come, if you've sensed just as we're going through this message that there are things that you are compromised of, that you are that the world says this is amazing and this is good and this is okay, and, and you're accepting it, let, let, let me help you out. Destroy it. Just destroy it. Cut it down break it apart just destroy it so that it no longer gets in the way of you and your relationship with jesus christ don't say we're just going to put off to the side because i'm strong enough he says no you get rid of it it's already proven itself in your life that it's a it's a hook that it's going to take you down and so just destroy it come back if you're actually saying why aren't i receiving the blessings of god this could be the reason because that's conditional now. You're, you're going to go to heaven. That's an amazing thing. But you're going to have a life of misery, no intimacy with God because you're not walking in that place of intimacy. And these things are what's getting in the way. So may we be those people who come and say, you know what, Lord, thank you for this warning. Thank you for this word. I want to commit myself to you and to recognize that you, as Moses has asked, that you would take us as your inheritance, that we are your children and heirs of the kingdom, and I want nothing getting in the way to, to ruin that experience. So when I get in heaven, I won't say, oh, wow, I wish I could have had this, or, you know, sorry about that. I want everything in my life here to say as much as possible. I want to pursue you and this beautiful relationship that I know that you have pardoned our iniquity and our sin, but take me as your child. Like he says in verse 9, take me as your inheritance and may we experience the fullness of that. Amen? Oh, Father, we are so grateful for this word. So grateful, Lord, that you and your grace talk to them as far as forgiveness and that blessings will flow. But there are, are warnings. You give warnings. And the warnings are be careful because they progress. It seems like a little thing now, and then it becomes a little bit more, and then it becomes a little bit more, and then it becomes death. It just becomes death. And so guide us, guard us, 
teach us, Lord, what we have taken in of the world of their gods. That if it is, Lord, help us to simply through your spirit destroy the altars. Help us, Lord, to, to basically break the pillars, cut down the images that we can walk in purity with you, that we can receive the fullness of your blessings. Oh, and that we can walk in your will as we're about to discover next week, that we can walk in the things. Here's what we avoid, but next week is what we walk into and we relish in and we anticipate and we can experience you in such a wonderful way. Show us those things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.